Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's guest speaker is Dave Corning, and his message is God's will for your life. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you for allowing me to be here. And, you know, I, I really have three, three goals today. Um, first of all, as Carrie already said, I want to give him a break. He's just so faithfully week after week after week. Uh, so um, hopefully he's getting it a little bit of a break and a rest this weekend. Secondly, I, I hope that um, and after you hear me preach today, you'll appreciate him even more. <laughs> and then thirdly, I truly, truly, truly want to honor Jesus Christ. If I don't do that, I have really missed the mark. So today, the, the, the title of our, my message is God's Will for Your Life. And um, as an introduction, I, I just would ask you a question. Have you ever been or participated in a scavenger hunt or a treasure hunt? Finding something or a series of things that have been very carefully hidden from you and you're just given clues to help you find them. Well, sadly, sadly, this is how some Christians think that finding the will of God is for them. It's kind of like a scavenger hunt, like a treasure hunt, like God is trying to hide something from you. Well, that's just not the case. He wants you to know what his will is for your life. Now, I'm going to say something that will probably be slightly offensive to you. I am here today to tell you what God's will is for your life. I'm going to tell you. And please don't think I'm a proud person because I'm not. I'm just going to share it with you from God's word. And you're going to very clearly see that God wants you to clearly know and understand his will for your life. Okay? So let's start... Let's start by turning to a, a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14. And I just want to read that through with you. And um, verse 11 is a, is, a, is a verse I'm sure many of you have said and heard before. But let's start with chapter 4, or verse 4, and go through uh, verse 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom have I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, they, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray the Lord on its behalf, for its welfare will find, will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not, let your, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring it bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. Now, this passage was not written to us. This passage of Scripture was written to a very specific group of people at a very specific group period of time. So don't start taking things from this passage of Scripture and say, well, this is God's will for me. No, no, this was God's will for the people of Israel who were in exile. But, but, why is this here? Why did God put this in his inerrant word? Why is it here? Well, just take a quick Jump for me over to 1 Corinthians 10.11. 1 Corinthians 10.11. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10.11 says this. Now these things, the things written in the Old Testament, happened to them as an example. But they were, were written down, uh-oh, for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. So why do I have the Old Testament? Why do I have this specific will of God that was given to this specific group of people? It's given to me for my instruction, for our instruction, for examples to follow. So there are applications that we can make from this passage of Scripture to our lives. So if you look at the specific uh, this passage of scripture, scripture specifically, how long were they to wait? Seventy years. How were they told to live? They were told to build homes and have families and pray for the people and their leaders. What did God promise them? He promised them if they were obedient, he would restore them to their homeland. And what type, what type of plan or what kind of will was this that God had for these people? It was to give them a future and a hope. Now, there are many things in that passage of Scripture that we could see as an example for our life and take them for our instruction. We need to obey. We need to pray. We need to go about living our lives to honor Christ. We need to make sure that we're discerning people and we're not listening to false teachers giving us instructions that are not from God. So there's many things that we can apply from that passage of Scripture. Now, here's how I take 1 Corinthians 10.11. If you ever, and you ever look in your, in your Bible and you look at the table of contents, over the table of contents for the Old Testament, I write down 1 Corinthians 10.11. It's all for me. And any, even in a broader sense, my view of Scripture, the Scripture's all about one, one person. One person. And that person is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points towards him. The New Testament points back at him. It's all about Jesus. You can know all the kings. You can know all the books of the Bible. You can know tons of verses. But if you don't know Jesus, you've missed it. It's all about him. It's for him. It's about him. If it's... 
you know, here, here, let me just try to reinforce that. Go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Verse 39. John 5, 39. Here it says, You search the scriptures. The Old Testament and the New Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The Bible is about Jesus. Jesus Christ, our precious Savior, who went to the cross and died for our sins and paid the penalty, was buried, rose from the death, has power over sin, has power over death, and is worthy of your hope, trust, and faith. That's who the Bible is about. Now, that was my introduction. So let's go into the specifics now of God's will for our lives. Okay? Now, from my perspective, there's two aspects of God's will. The first one we're going to go through pretty quickly because we really don't have that much to do with it. In fact, we don't have anything to do with it. It's God's sovereign will. Okay? Now, I don't have time to go to each one of these passages of Scripture, but I would challenge you to be like a Berean. In Acts 17, 11, it says, And these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, because they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So I'm going to say a lot of things about God's sovereign will, and I'm going to give you some passages of Scripture to look up possibly later. And I really want you to, to, to see for yourselves if what I'm saying is true. And by the way, you should do that with anyone who tells you anything. Be like the Bereans. Be more noble-minded. Get into God's Word. Search the Scriptures. Is this what it's saying? Or is this guy just telling me something that he wants to say because of whatever reason or motive that he might have? No, we need to be faithful to God's word. We need to take personal responsibility to dig into God's word and look and see what it has to say. So I will try to give you scripture. Some of them we'll look up. Some of them we'll, we'll um, just have to have you write down. Okay, God's sovereign will. God is in control. Okay? God is in control. He's sovereign. You know what? He's not worried about what's going on in the Middle East. He's not worried about this or that that's happening in the, our culture today. He's not worried about it. He's not, oh, what's going to happen to my church? He's not, gonna, he's not worried about that. He's in control. You know, A.W. Tozer made a, a quote one time. And I read out of a book, and I don't know the title of the book, but it's, he says, what a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. Think about that. What a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. And one of the things that we need to understand about God is that he is sovereign. He's in control. There's nothing that he's, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here now. No, 
That's not God. He's absolutely sovereign and in control. And there's, let me just share a quick little thing. I have this little illustration called a three-legged stool. I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, so I sat on three-legged stools and milked cows. But nevertheless, a three-legged stool, you've got to have all three legs or you're going to tip over very quickly. And here's the three-legged stool. First of all is God is in control. And if I understand that, I can have confidence. I can put my head down on my pillow tonight and I can sleep very well. Peace I have because I know my God is in control. Okay? Secondly, I need to understand that God is good. God is ultimately good. And therefore, I have hope. And hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a sure expectation of what's going to happen in the future. Not maybe, it's going to happen. So, God is sovereign, I have confidence. God is good, I have hope. And thirdly, the third leg of the stool is God is holy. God is holy. And therefore, I'm accountable for my behavior. I'm accountable for my behavior. So, first aspect of God's sovereign will is that he's in control. The second aspect that I want to share with you is the return of Jesus. Jesus is coming back. As sure as we're sitting in this room this morning, Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back to get us, to take us, to, to live with us, to reign with us. He's coming back. The next thing, it, it, this was alluded to in one of the worship songs that we were singing this morning about his church. Matthew 16, 18. Well, let me, let me give you the, the, the other references. And God is in control. A good verse on that is Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. The return of Jesus is John 14, 1 through 3. Now we're on his church. Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what's going to happen with the church of Jesus Christ? It's going to be victorious. No matter what attack, no matter what new laws are passed, no matter what our culture is telling us, the church of Jesus Christ will, will reign. It will, it, it will not be put down. It will continue to grow. The next one is Revelation 20, verse 10, and it's the ultimate defeat of Satan. The ultimate defeat of Satan. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. He is a defeated foe. It's just a matter of time. You know, I got to tell you a little story that I heard one time. It's kind of cute. Maybe, maybe you'll think so, maybe you won't. There's this young freshman boy. He's freshman going into his first year of college. And he... He, he, he just gave his life to Christ. He's a brand new Christian. Somebody just gave him a Bible and he had the opportunity to go to this Christian college. And so he's on campus, freshman, with his Bible, all excited. So he's sitting on a bench and one of the professors is walking by and the professor, um, <laughs> the professor worked, had been a teacher, a professor at the school for like 30 plus years just an, a Bible scholar. And he walks by and sees this young Christian boy reading his Bible. And he says, how are you doing, son? What are you reading? And he says, oh, I'm reading the book of Revelation. He says, well, that's a pretty tough book. you need any help? Do you have any questions? And he says, oh, I understand perfectly what it says. 
He says, you do? He says, that's interesting. There's a lot of things in there. So he kind of like walked away and well, that boy's got a little bit of a pride issue. Maybe. So later on he, he, he comes back and, and uh, the boy is still sitting on the bench and he goes, are, are you, what are you reading now? And he says, oh, I'm still reading in Revelation. He says, are you having any questions? You got any problems? No, I understand what, exactly what it says. He says, well, tell me then, what is the book of Revelation all about? He says, Jesus wins. <laughs> so, and he was right. He was right. And then the last aspect of God's sovereign will that I want to mention this morning is, is the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2.10, it says, Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether on the earth, under the earth, or above the earth. Every person on the face of this earth will bow, and they will understand that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's his sovereign will. So now, like I said, we really don't have a lot to do with those things. I was sharing yesterday with the, with the men at our, our breakfast meeting, um, Psalm 90, verse 12. And this is, I think, a good summary of God's sovereign will. It says, So teach us to number our days that we might present a heart of wisdom. You and I have a number of days. We have a beginning, and everybody knows what our beginning is, right? That was the date we were born. And we have an end date, too. And as we sit here, we don't know what that date is. It could be here, it could be there, it could be, it, it, it could be. But God knows the day that we're going to be taken away out of this world. And by the way, that's going to be the best day of your life if you know Jesus Christ. Because that will be the day that you step into his presence. Okay? So, but what are we to be doing during this time? Teach us to number our days. Because there is a number. So we need to live in light of the sovereignty of God. We have a specific time that we can invest in gold, silver, and precious stones, things that are eternal rather than just temporary. Okay, so let's now go to God's moral will. Now God's moral will is something where if we look at it carefully, and at the end, we can come to the conclusion that there is great freedom in God's moral will. He's not trying to hide something for you. It's not like that scavenger hunt or treasure hunt. So we want to focus very specifically on five things that are God's moral will. And that's what we have to deal with for our lives. Okay, the first one. The first one, and I want everybody to turn to these because these are very important if you can. Uh, Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. Let's go to Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. Okay. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. Now there's a little, fr I'm, I'm going to talk to you about five aspects of God's moral will for your life. And if you don't think that it's God's will for your life, after we read the passages, you just let me know afterwards. Okay. All right. It says, therefore, 
5.17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, so guess what? Here it comes. This is the will of God for you. What the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, God uses an illustration here of wine or alcohol. When a person gets too much wine or alcohol, same thing, in their system, what happens? They lose control. And that's sin. Not that you can't have a glass of wine, but you can't have too much. Because if you do, you are losing control. And God says, that's debauchery. Don't do that. But instead... He wants you to be filled, and I think a better word for filled is controlled, by the Holy Spirit. So God wants us to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not alcohol or some other substance or some idol or whatever that we might put in, in that place in our heart and mind. He wants us to be in control of the Holy Spirit, under the control of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that I like to use control, filled is what the God uses, because when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were given the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. And we're not to grieve him or quench him in the work that he does in our hearts and minds. But you and I will never have any more of the Holy Spirit than we have right now. But we can grow and develop and become more and more controlled by the Holy Spirit in our behavior and our actions and our thoughts and so forth. So the first aspect of God's moral will is that we be spirit-filled. Okay, let's go to the second one. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Okay, here it is. For this is the will of God. Okay, no questions there then, is there? Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, and it goes on and so forth. So your sanctification. Now what I'm talking about here, what God is talking about here is your progressive sanctification. And progressive sanctification is all about one simple statement. Becoming more and more like Jesus. If you see Jesus doing something, we need to become more like that. We need, if we can follow his example, it's, if it's other than some supernatural things, service, his heart for people, just any aspect of the Lord that you want to think about, we need to follow his example and become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's God's will for your life. It's God's will that you be spirit-filled, controlled. It's God's will that you be sanctified, become more like Jesus Christ. Let's go to the third one. Now this one might make your hair stand up a little bit, but that's okay. The next one is to be submissive to authority. To be submissive to authority. So let's look at 1 Peter 2. 13 through 15. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. It says, Be subject 
for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be by the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good, for this is what? The will of God. That by doing you, may, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So it's God's will for us to live under authority. Now you think about the authorities that are in our lives. Well, our ultimate authority is God. So what we see in his word, that is an authority over our lives. You know, I've, I've been an elder for 30-some years in, in churches. And sometimes it's hard when people profess to be Christians and they've, they're making a decision or they have made a decision that's absolutely contrary to what God's word instructs them to do. And I had a man look me in the face one time and he basically said, I don't care what God's word says. I'm going to do what I want to do. That doesn't go well. God is in authority and he's placed institutions over us. There's an authority system within our government. So a lot of people say they have a lot of complaints about the government. Well, you need to live under the authority of the government and the laws that have been placed upon us. We have authority in our workplace. We have a boss. If you're not the boss, and if you are the boss, you've got a boss. Jesus. But we need to live under their authority. There's an authority structure in the church. There's an authority structure in schools. And we need to live under those authorities because those authorities have been put in place by who? God put them in place. Now the only time, there's only one, one exception that you would not live under one of those authorities that God has put in place. And that is if that authority requires you to disobey God. Okay? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I really don't care what you're saying because we're not going to worship you. Our God is able to save you, save us, but even if he does not. I'm, I'm paraphrasing quite a bit there. But they were told to do something that was disobedient to God. So they said no. And if you look at the rest of their lives, they were, they were a submissive to Nebuchadnezzar at every point. Okay? So let's go on. Now this next one is a tough one. It's God's will for you and I to suffer. Hmm, why would that be God's will for us to suffer? Well, let's look at what he says in 1 Peter 4.19. 4, it's 4.14 um, through 19, I think. Let me get there. Yeah, 1 Peter 4.14 4, through 19. says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. 
Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey God and the righteous, and, and excuse me, and the righteous is scarcely saved? What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to what? The will of God, God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So it is God's will for us to suffer. He doesn't want us to suffer as a thief or a meddler or somebody that's just out doing bad stuff. If you suffer for that, that's, you're bringing that on yourself. But if you suffer for standing up for Jesus Christ, some guy is standing in, the, in, the, in, the, in a room with you and you're in a conversation with him and he starts saying this and that about Jesus and you say, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not true. Jesus is this and Jesus is that. But what you're saying is not true. Now you can do that in a gentle, reverent, respectful way. But if you suffer because you do something like that, God says you're blessed. Okay? But there's all different kinds of suffering that Christians endure. And some of them don't really have anything to do with standing up for Christ. So let me just talk to you real quickly about four reasons why people suffer. I wanted to drill down on this one just a little bit more because it's a tough one. Why do people suffer? First of all, it produces endurance. It produces endurance. James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. See, God puts trials and difficulties into your life so that you can grow and develop and become stronger in your faith and build your endurance. We should be thankful in that regard. Kids, when you send your kids to school and they come home with this really difficult assignment and you want them to do really good in school, so you do the assignment for them. And they turn it in the next day and it's really good. They get an A. What have you done? You've hurt your child. That child, if you do that consistently throughout that child's life, that child's going to be a spoiled brat. Incapable of taking care and having responsibilities and knowing how. So God lovingly puts difficult things in our lives to cause us to endure and to become stronger in our faith. Okay, let me give you another one. It, re it reveals my dependence upon the Lord. Who did he do this with? He did this with the Apostle Paul. It's a very clear example in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, and we don't even know what that thorn was. That's a good thing, because we all got lots of different difficult things. Physical health problems. Maybe that was sent by God to remind you, because Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. Trials, suffering causes us to depend more on Jesus. 
And that's a good thing because at the end of the day, we are 100% dependent upon him for your next breath of life. Okay, another reason. There may be a need of discipline. There may be a need of discipline in your life. And you might suffer as a result of that. What does he say in the book of Hebrews? God disciplines those who he loves. So if we can go on and we, you know, we never get any discipline from the Lord, well, it might be that you're not one of his children because he does discipline his children. And I'm not saying we've got to run out in the street and say, hey, throw rocks at me. No, not at all. But when it does come, look to see how God can use it in your life to make you endure, make you more dependent upon him. Maybe he's trying to get your attention about something and change a direction or a pattern in your life. Another one is often he uses suffering to glorify himself through you. You know, I, the, you all they think about Job, Job 13, 15. For though he slay me, I will praise his name. I will. Job never turned on God. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, but as for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So God may use you through a suffering circumstance to glorify himself. What a, what, a, what a blessing that would be if I could do something that would truly honor God with my life. And so when we see these difficult things coming our way, these types of different types of suffering, think about it. It's not about what happens to me that really matters. It's about how I respond to it that really matters because I can truly honor God. And then lastly, on the suffering issue, we just simply need to expect it. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, I say these things to you that in me you might have peace. For in this world you will, you will, underline the word will, you will have tribulation. Not you might, you will. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So put your trust in Jesus and you will. I'm not standing here saying your suffering will go away. That's up to God. But that is part of his will for our lives, that we would suffer. Lastly, number the fifth one. God, it's God's will. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says... Okay. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, the fifth aspect of God's moral will that I just wanted to talk about today was Christians should just be overflowing with thankfulness. With thankfulness. Where are you going? You're going to heaven. Who's your father? God Almighty. 
What about your sins? They've been forgiven. They've not only been forgiven, but they've been removed as far as the east is from the west away from you because of the work of Jesus Christ in your life. Get a smile on your face. There shouldn't be a depressed... I mean, I shouldn't say that. There shouldn't be a a long-standing position of discouragement in your life. Focus. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith who endured the cross. Get your eyes on Jesus. God is so faithful. Even when we're not, he's faithful to us. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I might blow it tomorrow or today, but tomorrow morning when I get up, I got a new chance to live for Jesus Christ. I got to keep my eyes on Jesus. I am so thankful, thankful, thankful for what he's done for me. And I trust that you're thankful for what he's done for you. Now, I said kind of a weird statement to you at the very beginning of this that I'm going to tell you God's will for your life. Well, God's word told you his will for your life, not me. Okay? Now, something else. Now, if, just say, now be careful which, which, what I, the way you interpret what I'm saying. If these five things, God's moral will for your life, these five things that we talked about, if they are truly realities in your life, they're true. I mean, you're living under the control of the Holy Spirit. You are living a life where you're trying to, to, to um, become more and more like Jesus. You're living under the authorities that God has placed over you and honoring him. You are willing to suffer and you expect it and you're going to go through it and you're going to try to glorify God and honor him as you go through this suffering that you would have to have possibly during your lifetime at different times. And lastly, you're just overflowing with thankfulness. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Now, is there a verse in the Bible about that? Yeah. Turn over to Psalm 37. But, remember, they have to be realities in your life. Psalm 37, I love this passage of Scripture. Psalm 37, 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, be spirit-filled. Be becoming more like Jesus Christ. Live under authority. Be willing to suffer. Be thankful. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. He just will. Okay? So, now we go to the application. And I'm, I'm on schedule, too. Application. Many of you have heard uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will direct your path or make your path straight. Okay? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Now, that passage of Scripture challenges us as followers of Jesus Christ to make wise decisions to stay within God's moral will for our lives. And one of the things that, that, are, that are brought up in there that I like to ask people, 
How do you acknowledge God? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Well, how do you know if you've acknowledged him? This is really a good little application that you can do to help you understand whether you have or you haven't acknowledged the Lord. Because if you do acknowledge the Lord and you listen to him, he'll make your path straight. Okay, first thing, common sense. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. So you have a decision to make. Where should you go first before you make that decision? You should go to God's word. God, what do you say about this? Is there anything specific in your word that addresses this decision that I'm about to make, big or small? And again, most of the decisions that you have to make are small. There's only about four or five major decisions that you make in your whole life. So most of your decisions are smaller decisions. But we need to acknowledge God in those decisions as well as the major ones. Well, people say, well, who am I going to marry? Well, that's a big decision. Or what's my job or career going to be? That's a big decision. I hope you acknowledge God in those areas as well. But there's just a handful of those. You make hundreds of decisions that you need and I need to acknowledge God in that process. So you go to God's word and he says it's a light unto your path. So if you're walking in the dark and you've got a flashlight, that's really helpful. If you're, if you're trying to make a decision, it's really helpful to have the word of God there to guide you and take the steps that he would be uh, prescribing for you. Okay, secondly, some things are not specifically addressed in God's word. So you just need to pray. Ask God for wisdom. In James 1.5, if you lack wisdom, ask. And what will God do? Will he give you wisdom? Will he give you understanding so that you could make a decision that would honor Christ? Really good question there is, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Lord, help me. Help me figure out what Jesus would do if he were standing in my shoes right now. Which way would he go? What would he do? What would he say? How would he respond? So pray that you can have wisdom from God. The third one is godly counsel. Godly counsel. That's in Proverbs 15, 22. There's great safety in many counselors. So, you don't know what to do. You've, you've looked at God's word and you've prayed and you're kind of stuck. And, and so you, you, you want to do the right thing. So you go find someone who can look at your situation objectively, not emotionally. Objectively. They know you. They know your strengths and your weaknesses. And you go to that person and you present the situation and you ask them, what do you think? And hopefully, hopefully, that person has the Bible in their right hand. And they can point you to passages of Scripture, principles of Scripture, that will give you good insight, good godly counsel about what you should do. Okay? So godly counsel can be very, very helpful. And then fourthly, you just simply look at the circumstances. In Proverbs 18, 13, it talks about a guy who started out building a building. But he didn't have a good plan, and halfway through the building, he ran out of resources and money. So the building sat there on the side of the road, half built. 
And anyone who walked by said, what a fool. What a foolish thing to do, start this building and not be able to complete it. So what we need to do as an application of that is we need to look at the circumstances. Before someone just shoves something in front of you and tells you to sign it, maybe you ought to look at what it says. Someone tries to say, you need to do this right now. No, you don't. Not usually. Very rarely do you get yourself in that situation. You see, Satan rushes people and God guides them. Okay? If I look back in my life, the, the biggest mistakes I've made is when I've acted out of impulse or I've made a rash, quick decision. And, the, and not very shortly after I made that decision, I regret it. Okay? So let the Lord guide you. You don't have to decide right now. Think about it. Pray about it. Look into God's word. Ask for godly counsel. And the Lord will direct your path because you acknowledged him and you put your trust in him. Now, real quickly, here's some key questions that you could ask yourself as, you, as, a resort, as it uh, involves God's will for your life. Am I putting God's desires ahead of my own? Will this help me love God and others more? Will this help me fulfill the Great Commission? Will this lead me to a more holy and compassionate life? Will this help me have a closer walk and worship of God? Let me run down those again real quickly. Am I putting God's desires ahead of my own? Will this help me love God and others more? Will this help me fulfill the Great Commission? Will this help me lead a more holy and compassionate life? Will this help me in a closer walk and worship of God? Just some practical questions to ask yourself when trying to live in the moral will of God. Now, to sum it up, it's two words. To stay in God's moral will for your life. Trust and obey. I'd sing you the song, but that would ruin the whole morning for you. But there's a song, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So if we can just do that, we're going to do great. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for Jesus Christ. And I pray that anything that we've said, that I've said this morning, Lord, 
I pray that it honors and points people to him. Father, that they would have a tremendous desire deep in their hearts to want to follow him and trust him. He is so worthy of our trust and that we would love him to the point where we would diligently seek to obey him out of a love for him. So, Father, thank you. I pray for this church. I pray that they would be discerning people, that they would look into your word to see whether these things were so. And, Father, that would just be something that they would grow in in a deeper and deeper way, that they would understand and rightly apply your word to their hearts and lives. So, Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for this church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.